It's the Mego Museum Podcast. Scott and Brian each sold separately. You can pull them, you can bend them, even have a tug of war. No matter how you stretch them, they keep coming back for more. Hey everyone, this is Scott. I, uh... I'm starting off the podcast today because I accidentally cut off the introduction that Brian and I recorded. So we're going to pick it up in midstream where Brian is telling us all about his recovery from last weekend's Mego Meet. And then we will segue into what uh, we both agree is a a long and fun podcast filled with lots of great Mego talk. So sit back and enjoy the Mego Museum podcast. I'm getting old. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, I went to bed every night like a good boy this week, and I woke up tired. It. I can't do four in the morning anymore. You know. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's amazing that, that 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 still happens. But uh, you know, I don't think too many of us get an opportunity to stay up. You know, chatting with the, the toy friends until four in the morning. So. It's it's it's, uh, it's pretty intoxicating, and uh, it is a like. You know, I was walking to my car to get something, and I could hear birds. You know, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> time for me to go to bed. So, uh, unfortunately, I missed the Saturday night uh, where, where they have the uh, Mego car races. Oh, no, yeah. That's such a blast. And I'm, it's it's uh, it's run by uh, Paul Clare and uh, Rose Baltazar, uh, Art's wife and... Uh, it's it's starting to become like an annual tradition, and it's it's just a lot of goofy fun. I wanted to put Brick Mantooth obviously in a car. Oh yeah, but, you know, because he'd win. But um, it just it just didn't happen. Well, so. it's probably more fair to everyone else. I mean, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and and the event itself was uh, run this year by Chris Johnson. Uh, he took over for Dave McCormick, who has been the showrunner for the past six years. Uh, Chris did a great job. His this year the focus was on customs. And he made it a family event. There was a table for run by uh, Scott, who goes by Random Axe on the boards, which gave you all your supplies. And we had a customs contest this year that was very well received. And a lot of children, uh, there was a children's category, and that went over well. A lot, of, a lot of creativity this year, and a lot of fun. Oh, that's and, fantastic! Well, that's so. That's just so perfectly what Migo is all about, and it is awesome to bring. Like, I actually, I think. One of these years, I will make the trek out to West Virginia, and it'll be a thrill to take take my own kid out there because it's it's pretty cool. All the dads and moms showing up with their kids to to play with toys. It's yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the show is evolving. We have cosplay every year now, which is something I never would have expected. <laughs> um, we certainly pretty, do. Pretty inventive. Uh, uh, Brew showed up with his daughter, and they were dressed as the Wonder Twins. Yeah, the cutest thing ever. It was pretty adorable. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Chad, who has shown up in the past in his amazing Iron Man outfit, this year showed up. And, and, and I don't know how he survives the heat in this thing, but he was dressed as the Red Skull from the new movie. And, you know. Oh, I didn't even uh, think about that. My God, it is, it's, it's a little swampy in West Virginia in the middle of the summertime. Pretty funny for taking the photos outside because cars just slow to a crawl. <laughs> And we also took a photo of the seven people um, who have attended all the shows. That's, and I'm in, I'm in that group, uh, Dr. Migo, uh, I think Paul Clare. Anyways, we took the photo. We did a little photo shoot outside of a – there's a caboose outside the museum. Right, yeah. And I think it was really funny because you've got all these people photographing us and just cars driving by like, who are those guys? <laughs> <laughs> 
you're, you're like the seven old men from Disney. <laughs> it's the new monkeys. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. So yeah, you must. We we got to enjoy the 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 interviews that you recorded uh, for the for the last podcast, and um, it, just what a great uh, opportunity it is to hang out and talk to people face to face at length that uh, yeah. you know, normally you have to you know you're typing and messaging and stuff like that but uh it sounds like you just you hung out with some really cool people from the boards yeah i got to interview some folks i've known before and i made some new friends which was terrific um yeah, you were telling the... me about you were telling me about uh paul from laser migo made it all the way out from portland that's right, and actually I got to face-to-face discuss a very cool little side project that I'm going to do with the Brick Doll. I, I plan to kind of expand it past just the initial offering and do some really kind of cool um, experimental ideas with it, and, and it was really a, a joy to just be able to sit with Paul and talk to them about him face-to-face and him coming back with his ideas and you know, you can't you can't beat that. As much as we live in a digital age, it's it's nice to talk to people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Paul's made and, some really cool stuff for the custom playsets that I've done. And um, yeah, if you you come to him with an idea, he can figure out a way to cut it out of plastic with a laser. And he makes neat things. Yeah, he does. He does. And, and I believe he gave a seminar this year. I, I was in and out so much, I I couldn't. The one thing about Mega Meat is. You want to go to, say, one place to do a, a tape and interview, and you get stopped by about three interesting people, you know, and right. you just find your day goes, oh, oh, it's it's two, you know, I got to I got to move on. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. No, this um, is this is why you stay up until four o'clock in the morning. There's just that many people to talk to. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think I could do it every weekend. <laughs> Um, so I, also... I I keep interrupting you, but but no you, were t- you, you were talking about the 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 brick man tooth stuff, and um, Steve Moore had a bunch of cool brick man tooth looking costumes. What was up with those? I saw a photograph on the boards about that. I've been uh, I've been in the know of that, and I think that's only half of the man tooth line. Uh, Steve is probably more excited about the doll than I am, which is great, and he has been scouring thrift stores for the ugliest fabric he can find and and if you noticed he's even replicated some famous plaid stallions outfits yes uh, he had the i am the pretty butterfly guy which <laughs> just floored me um uh, and and yeah we'll be doing a lot more with steve soon um, so are they I, are I those had... gonna, are those going to be available for people to are they going to try to try to make multiple copies of them or is it a custom project what's that all about I think it's a custom project right now, but there's something that will be done with those because it's just too wild not to. Yeah, I just I, I really need several of those outfits. They're completely <laughs> awesome. Actually, one of them is the pattern is the exact same pattern as the carpet in my grandmother's basement. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, I call my grandmother's basement the last bastion of funk. Yeah. It's just wood paneling and orange carpet, and I love it. Uh. In fact, there's talk of doing a Mantooth commercial, and that is absolutely where I have to film it. Oh, fantastic! Time capsule, and um, this was this. This is definitely the suit I need. I saw that suit, and I was like, "You need to make me one of these." I don't care if it's for me or the doll. I, you know, I I will wear it. Um, and we are also doing um, a few other little things that I won't get into right now. I know we planned to have the Brick Mantooth doll at the show, and this was uh, Blame It on China. 
Uh, Paul was Paul Clark, Dr. Migo worked really hard to get it done and he was really disappointed he couldn't. It's a blessing in disguise because I really would have spent the entire show putting dolls together and not enjoyed myself. I wouldn't have been able to do the podcast interviews. I wouldn't have been able to stay up till four o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, talking shop with the boys. Um, this this was better. I, it was more of a, a nerd vacation for me. He did hand me gigantic bags of the clothing, and uh, there was a couple of surprises in there because Brick's belt. Uh, originally, he handed me kind of like a cloth, looks like a robin belt. The Brick's belt from China is this kind of cool vinyl version of the AJ belt. Wow. I'm really impressed with it. Uh, the super collector suits are great. Everything looks kind of cool, and I think I think we went with um, Brick's going to be wearing kind of uh, versions of the Andorian boot. Sweet. Like a shortened version of the Andorian boot. So very happy with that. The heads are set to arrive any time, so we're looking at a July release for the dolls. Okay. You know, and uh, terrific. And so once again, when 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 they're available for sale, you're, it's going to be a, a solid box with brick on yes. one side, the super collector on the other side, and inside will be what? You will get a body with the swivel arms, the Doc Mego body, the new swivel arm body, uh, two heads. One of the Super Collector, one of Brick Mantooth. Brick's outfit, which is, you know, brown shirt, green bell bottoms, uh, a belt and jean, uh, and boots. Uh, the Super Collector's outfit, boots, uh, and and uh, and belt, which is like the astronaut's belt from Planet of the Apes. Right. And, and the museum, which uh, is little, the item little, that keeps me up at night. A little tiny <laughs> plastic museum. It is, it is resin. Um, but yes, it is the, I'm telling you that thing is a steal because of the time and energy. And if I did not have a good friend in Sean Sansom, who is, I can't believe championing this for me. Yeah. Those are basically, those should cost me $20 each. And yeah, because of the time and effort he is putting into them. And, and you know, yeah. there's going to be two batches of them because the first batch he's not happy with the process. So it's just, oh my it's not goodness. Oh, yeah, this to, is a, man, what, a big what a blessing. Steak. What a blessing. Yeah. yeah. And and how, how, uh, many, how, many, how many of those are being made? Well, uh, we have 125 done right now. So the, the figure might actually come out in waves. Yeah. I'm not... I'm not a fanatic for pre-ordering. In fact, I hate pre-orders. I don't want to take your money and not give you something. Right. So the way the doll might come out, and don't think I'm trying to pull some kind of fast one, all it is is I want to have inventory. So I might say, hey, the first 100 super collectors are available right now. And then if you're number 101, well, I'm going to take your email down, and when 101 is done, maybe in a couple of weeks, I will call you or email you and... Okay. Tell you it's ready to order and you're on the list. So, right. you know, um, it's going to be a busy July. Um, no kidding. But I'm looking forward to it. Um, traditionally, my wife and kids take a uh, a long vacation up to Grandma and Grandpa's, so this will uh, keep me honest, I guess. And the other thing <laughs> that will keep me honest is something I announced at Mego Meet, but I didn't really hold a press conference for it. And is that is I am uh, launching a book. How exciting! Um, Tell us more. It, <laughs> Thank you, um, Scotty Shill. What? No, no, it's true though. It's because all these photographs appeared on the boards 
um, many of them with no commentary whatsoever, and it was sort of like, yeah. what is that? It looks like an interesting book cover or magazine project or something. What's there's up? There's a couple of there's a couple of publications coming out this year that I have my hands in, and this is the one I'm kind of free to talk about right now, and that is. Um, I'm tentatively titling it Galaxy of Mego. That may change, uh, especially for my wife, who hates it. Um, I am working on this with a co-author, and and we will be revealing a lot more around July. Um, It's it's going to be everything Mego sci-fi. Wow. So we're going to start with Planet of the Apes. Uh, obviously work our way to Star Trek, but also talk about things like Dr. Chrome Dome, uh, the uh, the Logan's Run line, Doctor Who, Space 1999, the Micronauts. Of course. And I'm going to need... I'm going to need some help from the Mego community, and I, I had a few meetings at Mego Meet with people who I would call experts in their field, and um, we're going to try to make this the most comprehensive, um, colorful book we can. Uh, I do not have, uh, I cannot speak to a publisher right now, like I, I, we are talking to a publisher, but I have no confer- confirmation, but one thing I will say is if that I can't work it out with a publisher, I'm going to become the publisher. Right on. Um, so it'll be under, I don't know, Mantooth Press or something like that, because <laughs> I want to do this. I want this done. So, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, and it's going to be a, uh, I hope it's going to be a fun journey. I, I've recently gone back to school to take uh, Adobe InDesign to, to basically learn how to lay things out, and I've had a lot of fun with that. Um and I've had a lot of support, so I think I think this will be a really interesting couple of months. Oh, I think it's so. yeah. It sounds sounds like a great project. I know a lot of people are are gonna are gonna eat it up, and um, as long as you're having fun, that's all that counts. Well, I was initially approached by my co-author. He asked me about it, and I said I don't know. And then I started to write what I knew about Mego Sci-Fi and and sure. the things I could bring to the book. And midway through writing this thing, I went, I, I should do this. Because mm-hmm. it was just so much. Um, I have I didn't even realize how much material I've saved up over the years in working with the museum. Right. You know, sci-fi stuff is easier to find than superhero stuff for me. Like, I, I've always found interesting things when it comes to Star Trek or Planet of the Apes, but not so much on the uh, on the superhero side. That's interesting, that yeah. Kinda, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, all I those think because Mego, and... go ahead. Well, Mego hired a lot of people after the superheroes, you know. Um, right. They they hired they had a big, I'd say, hiring boom in about seventy four seventy five, and so a lot of those people really, you know, have strong memories of Star Trek or Black Hole or Buck Rogers and right. You know? Right. Well, and plus, like you know, like I started to say about press releases and and newspaper articles mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like the, when the world's greatest, super, no, nobody's paying any attention to Mego when world's greatest superheroes came out. You know, but by seventy four or seventy five, you know, they're having big giant events at Toy Fair with uh, you know promoting Star Trek and you know the stories about them uh, driving Shatner and Nimoy around to Toys R Us and you know all that kind of stuff. So you know they really were were putting themselves out there and of course they you know made a huge push with micronauts and you know and then oh, of yeah. course some of the things that you know didn't go so well the black hole or star trek the motion picture and stuff like that but yeah yeah, so, yeah fact, there's a lot of material 
the title of my chapter for motion picture tentatively right now is, well, we just lost $40 million, <laughs> which is what Neil Kublin told me he said to Marty Abrams after they saw the film. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually, we're going to do a little focus uh, later on about uh, Neil Kublin. And, right. um, and, uh, but yeah, that's definitely like that story and the story about Shatner going around to Toys R Us with Leonard Nimoy is are two that I remember from those interviews quite well. Um, well, congratulations. It sounds like a really, a really terrific project. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to, are going to enjoy seeing that once it comes out. Thanks a lot. It, it's, uh, something I needed to do for a long time. And I think I've shown you this before, but I actually like wrote this book when I was 15 Yes. Ever shown you that 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 pad with yes. photographs in it? Yes, yeah. yes. So That's that'll right. work its way in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, well. Speaking of books, we actually have are going to put in a call uh, in just a few minutes to Ben Holcomb of World's Greatest Toys, uh, who mm -hmm. wrote the book, what I think World's is definitely toys. the definitive book on Migos, World's Greatest Superheroes. And, uh, yeah, he didn't so, leave a lot of room for anything else. No, absolutely, sure. absolutely. And um, um, but he he uh, I think he swore off doing a science fiction book a while ago. So the road is clear. Well, I, I talked to him about that a long time ago, and his heart was in the superheroes. Yeah. And uh, you know you can see it, and if your heart's not in something, it's really hard to put it together. So I totally understand that he's not a Planet of the Apes guy. He's not a Star Trek guy. Right. And that's cool, and uh, you because know, whatever terms... whatever this is, it's hun it's literally hundreds of hours of work to go into creating Absolutely. something like this. You know, the word "labor of love" gets bandied around too much, but what else is it? Right. You know. Yeah, no doubt. So we're gonna uh, transition into that, and I just wanted to hook those two things up um, as mm -hmm. a nice segue. But we kind of also, I think, need to stop and and acknowledge. Yeah. The other thing right. that happened this week, you know, we just enjoyed a, a nice conversation about Migo Meat, but in a way, Migo Meat was eclipsed in the middle of the week when there was an announcement that came out um, from a board member who runs a website called Infinite Hollywood, uh, submitted some Q&A to representatives of Maddie Collector, and so to the surprise of many people, um, came away with the information that it looks like the retro action line of superheroes from Mattel is coming to an end. Yeah, this is very disappointing news. Um, as as I've discussed here before, Scott, I, I've always been kind of superhero apathetic over the years, and I was really sad by that news because as much as I say that, I bought every single one of these things, especially if I saw them on re at retail. Yeah. Um, just because they were kind of fun and brightly colored and awesome to see. And, you know, it's, it's disappointing to hear that, you know, the, the line didn't get, like, I think a lot of people don't feel it got a fair shot. There was some distribution issues going on where people couldn't find waves. And it's it's hard to say if we really, if we really got a true test, if the Mego format is viable. Other companies, uh, albeit smaller companies like Biff Bang Pow and Diamond, seem to be enjoying great success with it. That's that's the what I hear direct from the horse's mouth, anyways. So, you know, I, yeah, I, it's bittersweet. It's uh, it's um, it, it, it's definitely sad news, and it's been yeah. I just there's just no way to say it. It's, it's been controversial news. Um, uh -huh. I think if uh, you know, if there's any subject that has stirred 
I can't think of any subject that has stirred greater passion at the Meagle Museum uh, other than perhaps the, uh, you know, repro parts, yeah. you know, controversy. Yeah. Um, yeah, is yeah. the Mattel retroaction, you know, um, from the beginning there were, you know, there were admittedly there were, uh, there were some problems with the bodies uh, mm-hmm. with the, in the first wave that came out. There was uh, a lot of uh, a lot of blood was spilled over that particular issue, and um, and I would definitely say that that almost universally one of the, the the universal comment on the boards regarding retroaction is I just I want to buy them in a store. I cannot find them. And, yeah, uh, now d- distribution I, I was a problem. We had Joe and and Paul on a while ago, and and you know J- Joe was talking about well, you know that's in this day and age, it's not always possible to have that moment where you go into a store and and buy something, and it was sort of a you know joked a little bit about you know this like you know need to replicate that experience of when you were a kid or whatever. But like a lot of people are pointing out. Buying something online, you're buying a twenty dollar action figure, and you're paying fifteen dollars in shipping to get it oh, to yeah. your house. Um, and in this day and age, that's a that's a tough. I do most of my shopping online, but I because I getting to Toys R Us is a pain in the neck where I live. Um, but, well, I'm uh, Canadian, so ha- uh, we got Wave Two and we got Wave Four. Ah, so there was no choice. I had to buy online. Uh, my thing to that is. The diehards will find it. You know, people can, they'll complain on the message boards and that's their right. But the thing is, what about the guy who gets reunited with the Mego via Toys R Us? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like the guy who doesn't even know what the word Mego means and he just remembers playing with, uh, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't just say the guy, the guy or the gal who, who, who walks around and says, oh, oh my God, I had a Superman like that. Right. I'm having and, a serious flashback triggers- right now. Yeah, because that's just lost revenue, and th- that's too. You know, that's the thing that I wish the distribution was a little better. Because I've seen people, I've seen that light connect, and I'm sure you have too. Or, mm. you know, I, I I think at um, at Mego Meet, I saw someone just nearly cry. Oh, uh, you know, just because it was all their childhood friends back, and that's neat. Yeah, and, no, it's. And, and, that it's, might have been the saving grace of this line. It's a big, know? it's it's a big deal. You know, there's no doubt that 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 um, yeah, there's so many great Mego style products being made right now. We we know all about them. We talked all about them. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt that for many people, you know, the superhero is the gateway drug to Mego addiction. And mm-hmm. um, so, and you know, and the thing about it is, is like. If you haven't noticed, superheroes are a really big deal. They are yeah. a huge industry. They are a you know a lot of money is going into them, and so they their expectation is to move a lot of products. You know, and yeah. I guess the you know the it, just one one has to consider whether or not as great as Migos are is, is can they survive at that scale? You know, um. Uh, is is the Biff Bang Pow Diamond Comics kind of um, model a little more right sized for for Mego? But uh, you know, really, if you want, hey, if you want to make the man in the big blue tights, uh, you got to sell a, a lot of them. And, oh, um, absolutely! But I do think Which, I absolutely I absolutely think it's a very fair question as to whether or not the line was given uh, was given a fair shake. Um, all I can say is here we got we got buckets of wave two when it came out. 
mm-hmm. just I'd say four cases of it at, at minimum. And I think we got the same of Wave 4, so that's like Shazam and Black Adam. And I visited Toys R Us this morning, and it was at one point they had eight facings of them. Now they barely have two. You know, you sure you can still buy an Aquaman, you can still buy a Black Manta, but a lot of the heroes are gone. Right. And I th- I think if, you know, if that's a model of success, I don't live in a, how do I put it? I don't live in the hippest town in the world. Let's just put it that way. Um, so I'm, I, I'm imagining that that connection was being made. Um, and, and a lot of things were just selling because they were available and right there at Toys R Us. Right. So, you know, I, I, I think the line has appeal, but I'm also hosting a podcast to a 30-year company that's been out of business for 30 years, so I am a touch bias. Yeah, well, you know, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we're not we're not the most objective source, yeah. you yeah. know, on this, you know. And I and I got to tell you too is it's like uh, my eyes glaze over like when um when you get into the 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 complaints about Toys R Us distribution and blah blah blah, you know, like that's that's the one aspect of toy collecting I've always hated. You know, uh-huh. is the, the you know, because and it's been going on forever. You know, it's like why is you know there's short casingness and blah 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 and all this kind of this like it's like you have to have uh, an inside knowledge of corporate America and and you know shipping practices and retail stocking and all this like there's so much discussion about this this business that that. Um, just really, I don't know, it just really turns me off, and and who knows what yeah. the truth is, you know? Because a lot of it's conjecture. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I've actually worked for Toys R Us, I've not, not in the retail level, but actually been a, a, a Toys R Us vendor, uh, actually with with uh, the DC Comics license at one point. So a lot of the stuff I read, I kind of just go shake my head, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to enter that fray. That's that's a waste of energy for me personally, but. You know what? You'll never be able to. It's like a tire fire. You know, you'll just never be able to get rid of that in right. toy collecting. Right. So well, we've just been happily oblivious to it because we've been talking Mego for so long. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah. Fortunately, I I pretty much focus on vintage toys, so I don't worry too much about what's in stock at Toys R Us. But but you know, darn it, rest in peace, uh, retro action. And you know, we said it before many times, but congratulations. To Paul and Joe and MC Toys for the work they did in uh, getting this happen. They, you know, they brought 21 action figures to market in uh, the 21st century, and that's pretty remarkable. Um, and we, it, there's still a lot of un. We don't know whether or not there's there's word that there's six more figures out there that had been had been at least prototyped. If not, you know, we don't know if they're going to be produced. The the rather, you know, the the announcement from Maddie Collector said, you know, after 2011 there will be no more re- retro action. So will there be any more? Um, you know, it's certainly. Uh, yeah. I I know that. Uh, you know, whatever. There's just there there are so many characters that we would love to see. Um, what you so. can do as a collector is, and I I'm I'm a huge fan of this. Is uh, voice your opinion. Send a polite. I can't stress that enough. Email or letter to Mattel. There is a Facebook group called Save Retroaction. Always strengthen numbers. You know, the hope is to either get Wave 5 released, because as always, 
the, the wave that doesn't get released is the most awesome in any toy line. Mm. And, uh, or, you know, maybe make this look really appetizing to DC Direct. Because while the numbers might not be appealing to Mattel, DC Direct might be able to get interested with those kind of numbers. Maybe, you know, they, they have a lower overhead and, and this might be the niche market they want. Who knows? It doesn't hurt to try. You know, and and that's you know I think I think if you're a fan and you you really liked your retroaction, then then tell somebody. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm not sure what more. Hopefully, we'll have some more news about that uh, later on. We're definitely we're on the story and um, uh-huh. staying in touch we with uh, the principal people that as as we can, and um, uh, so we'll see what happens. But uh, absolutely, you know, here we are. It's Things are things are exciting in the Mego world in, in uh-huh. 2011, and that's that's pretty hard to believe. So another big exciting. I'm gonna I'm gonna segue now smoothly. All right. Watch this is gonna be sweet. Another big exciting uh, event in the Mego world is um, an auction that is happening uh-huh. at Hawks America. I believe Hakes. it is Hakes Hakes. Uh, I believe it is closing this week, and that is for Ben Holcomb's uh, collection. We're sitting here with uh, Benjamin Holcomb, uh, known to a lot of people as author of World's Greatest Toys, the uh, pretty much the Bible for Mego superheroes, and of course uh, a, a person of interest this month as uh, his esteemed collection is uh, going up for auction in a series uh, from Hakes, uh, the first uh, part ending this month. Ben, welcome to the Mego Museum podcast. Thanks. Good morning, guys. Hey Ben, Great welcome, welcome, and Ben. Ben, of course, is known as as Imp on the Mego Museum forums. Um, where did the name Imp, um, Where did the name Imp come from? Oh my God, that goes back to high school. Um, <laughs> awesome. When I used to, uh, when I was a little troublemaking punk, and we had, you know, in the eighties, you had to have your graffiti tag. Yeah. And so my tag became an upside down question mark, which the way I drew it ended up looking like a D. With a lowercase i attached to it. Okay. So uh, I, I came up with the idea of Dangerous Imp as a tag name, and that turned into a lot of people just starting to call me Imp, an Imp being a little mischievous devil type, um, Mr. Mitz Piddlet character. Right. And at the time, it, it matched who I was small and um, um, horrible. <laughs> Well, you've you've managed to cause uh, a lot of really good trouble in the Mego world. Um, ben is Ben. God, I I feel like you go back all the way to the earliest days of the Mego Museum. Um, uh, we became friends online like way back in I guess 1997. Ben, ninety six or ninety seven when you had just started doing it. I think just started. I, we became I got, friends on the Robert Levy list. I think all three of us became friends. First on the levy list, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, my first. I was I was uh, taking a photo of a poppy doll, and I realized you hooked me up with that fourteen years ago. Oh my gosh! Which one? Which one was that? Which Which one? Uh, Cayman Rider V three. Nice. I remember that one well. And I remember I actually scored a couple of those figures from Robert Levy. Speak of the devil. I got uh, like Battle Kenya from him, which was tough wow. to find. That's right. Yeah, he was really into those. He was. He was a. He was an early adopter of the the cool Japanese poppy action. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he was, and yeah, you you actually hooked me up with a, a big chunk of my very first uh, collection, my first Green Goblin I got from you. I remember you had scored a uh, uh, a collection from 
somebody oh. out when you were in Massachusetts and you hooked You know what that was? I just came across the paperwork from that. That was a guy named Bob Selstedt. And he used to have a mail order business. And I think it was called It Came From The Basement, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. I remember and, that. Yeah. And Bob Selstedt would run a fairly consistent ad in the old days in Toy Shop. Yeah. And... I remember sitting in my uh, my first loft when I lived in Oakland, California, where you are now, Scott, and that you 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 subscribed and you'd get the early copy of it, and so you'd go immediately to the ads because you wanted to be the first one to make the call and sort of lay claim to any mego goodness a guy might have. So he had just done this massive uh, score from an old doll collector, and he, everything he had was top notch. And so I think that we used. I used the, the levy list and said, who wants what? Because I can't afford to buy all this stuff, and it's killer. So that's probably where you got that one from. Yeah. No, I remember that well. That was, God, that was a good time. Well, that, you oh. know, and it's like it's like the, the fact that you still have the paperwork from that and can recall all the names is 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 one of the reasons I got to say why you were the perfect person to, to write World's Greatest Toys. Thank um, you. Because it's, it's, that kind of, it's that kind of attention to detail and um, – love of of uh, history and record keeping that that allowed you to track down some really amazing stuff that's in your book absolutely and and in anticipation of this call I started going through my old files I don't I don't go back through the Mego stuff I, I sort of when the book came out I distanced myself and I think it was so much work and so much energy and passion that went into it I had to sort of do a 180 so I have not yeah. put a lot of, of attention or emphasis on um, any toys, really. Because uh, I was crazy about all, all super. Like, as long as it had a cape, I was into it. But I really sort of walked away from that stuff. But just in anticipation of this call, I started going through using my Adobe Bridge, which file management, and looking through all these old files. And incidentally, I have some audio interviews that I think I want to share with you guys for an upcoming podcast. I may just pass them over to you and let you decide if you want to do it or not, because there's some really revealing stuff in in those interviews, and I don't want to be the one that publishes it. <laughs> oh, fantastic! I can't I can't imagine saying no to something like that. Yeah, so I thought I, I actually thought I had lost the original um, data files. I, I remember back in like 2004 or whatever, I went to Radio Shack and got one of those little um, voice recorders. That you yeah. could you could plug into the phone, and so I've got like the I probably the same way you did, or maybe you did even more low tech with um, Neil Cudlin, Scott. Right. And those interviews are just legendary. Those I still will I will always owe you a huge debt of gratitude for for those interviews because they gave me so much. Obviously, they're cited in the book numerous times, but that was a great because I personally never got to interview him. I had email exchanges with Neil back and forth. And he was so busy right up until his untimely passing. I never could actually nail him down. He's not someone I was ever able to interview. Right. Yeah, I, right. Got, I got a second interview with him that was I really coveted. We talked all the time, but he was tough to nail down. And oh. I used to just take solace and like I'd go, "Give me your impressions of King Kong." Mm. And get a, a one-line email like, "It wasn't totally unfair," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you just you took that for what it was, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. We, uh, we, we, you feel well, like you know him after listening to Scott's interviews. You know, you feel yeah. like this is a person that um, was just really shooting from the hip at all times. 
he was an extremely genuine human being and uh we owe him a great debt just for sharing so much that he did you know i mean it's yeah. crazy I it really broke yeah. my heart when he passed i never met him never knew him um but on the, on the one level it's just oh i really wish i could have talked to him but on the other it was that sense of like i feel like i lost a friend this was somebody who i was so integral to to me go to success and i feel like i had talked to everybody else on earth that i could find and never could get him yeah he gave he gave two guys on the boards um we and super underdoggy uh, dan and bill a tour of new york city Oh. And showed him where Migo was, and just apparently spent a whole afternoon with him. He was really, really quite, quite giving of himself. I wish I had been involved in that tour. That's for sure. Oh, that would oh, be fantastic. Too. Well, you know, I, Ben. Oh, actually, I'm, I'm always envious of that. Mm-hmm. I um, uh, Ben actually, I alarmingly had lost my original recordings of of the Neil Copeland interviews, but I had made a copy and sent them to Ben to use with his book. So he sent them back to me, and I've, I've digitized them, and I'm going to include some excerpts in this podcast since 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 we're talking about it. And, um, you know, Neil, I will always remember when I mean, Neil got in touch with me after I had posted um, an article that John Bonavita, the other Migo author, had written. Mm-hmm. He put, he'd put together this, it was a kind of a, Funny little article of like twenty five strange but true facts about Migo. Migo, believe it or not. Migo, believe it or not. And, um, and, and so I had, you know, we were very excited, and, and we posted this up, and then I got this email from this guy who's like, "Yeah, I was reading that, and this is wrong, and this is inaccurate, and that's actually not what happened." And you know, it actually took a little bit for me to believe that this wasn't just some crackpot who was getting in touch with me, but this was actually the vice president of research and development at Migo. Scott, Scott, didn't we all think he was a total crackpot at first? I mean, I think we all were like, yeah, right. Yeah, right, of course. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, you know, it's it's the internet, you know? you All kinds of strange people get in touch with you and, and make outrageous claims. But um, so eventually I... I I sat down with him on the phone, and and I'll play a little bit. I can't. I don't think I've ever been as nervous as I was when I first called him. Um, but he was he was uh, a, a really great guy. And then, um, you know, and then when I passed the interview on to Brian, and he followed up with Neil, and was responsible for getting Neil to the the MigoCon, and mm-hmm. um, and then all that information was expanded upon in your book because you spent. You didn't get to interview Neil, Ben, but you did spend quite a bit of time with his assistant, I believe. Correct. Yeah, and a lot of people who knew Neil. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't work there without dealing with Neil a lot. So, um, what amazes me is that across the board, everybody I interviewed, no matter where they were at what level of of employment at Migo, there was so much adoration of Neil. He must have been an amazing cat to work for. Because everybody, I mean, I dealt with people who, who actually didn't even work at Nego. They worked for independent toy distributors. And even they somehow had managed to have interactions with Neil, maybe at toy fairs or whatnot. And there was just this, always this admiration and adoration of this guy. Where, of course, not everybody at Nego had that kind of reputation. You know, there were, of course, problematic areas in Nego too. But Neil... Much, much, much beloved guy. Yeah. Jump forward a little bit and talk about about the the auctions. So, Ben, you're selling your Mego collection. What's going on? 
I know. <laughs> I mean, dude. <laughs> I know. I know. It's it, it it's it's simultaneously joyous and painful. Yeah. Um, it feels it feels right to do it. I mean, I, when I started working on the book, it was one of my um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge lines about my my goal was I'm going to put this awesome collection well beyond what I could ever own into this book and it'll be a portable collection. You, know, you can throw it under your arm, throw it in your bag, and you've got some of the best-looking Migos in the world. And once I do that, I'll sell my collection. That was the, the joke. I actually never thought I would. So uh, you know, the book came out, what, four years ago now? Mm. Um, and the time, the time seemed right to do it you know we've, my family has moved things things are evolving and changing and um, it's going to be hard to watch it go what helps me is that I sent the entire collection over to Pennsylvania to Hakes before I moved so ever since I've been here for about three months in Portland and I don't have my collection hmm. so it's, it's helping me create some separation and, and deal with it. The only thing I, I, I have that they don't have is my beloved counter display box that's filled with the 24 Minton box superheroes from Wave 1 and Wave 2. Okay. That I still have. <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to ship that along with everything else I had spent 30 years collecting. Uh-huh. So I was like, I'll take that with me. And that box sat in the front seat of the U-Haul with me <laughs> the entire drive up. Kidding! Oh yeah, with a seatbelt on, probably. Yeah, no, it was well, it was well protected. It had, I had blankets and padding. It was, you know, triple boxed. It's just, it's so fragile. You know, it's just. It's it I it, it that that is I've seen it in person and it's it's one of the most remarkable pieces in Amigo collection I've I've ever seen. It's a sight to behold. It really is. Display boxes are just. Uh, they make me weak in the knees. Right. Well, but and the the I mean the fact that I mean Ben filled it with exactly like all of the boxes that are in that display box are exactly the boxes that should be in the display box, right down to the the serial numbers and and actually no, else. there are a couple there are a couple that are later edition boxes, so that's not oh. entirely I know. Scandal. You're making me oh. look bad. Horrible. No, I, I never told. I never told you. I never was. <laughs> I never was honest with anyone. I told you I'm small and awful. Uh. Um, no, no. There are a couple of pieces in there. What it is is it's consistent to wave one and two. So it's got the first four: Superman, okay. Batman, Robin, Aquaman, and the second wave: Spider-Man, Tarzan, Shazam. You know, so he's got all those okay. characters. But there's a couple of box variants. And again, you know, we had ten years of, of superheroes work for, sure. for variations to do. Sure. That was my goal though. Of course you know that was my goal was oh. to finally get it all down to where it's all the four panel box for all those characters. That would be the dream, because that was the counter display box for the bat uh, packaging variant. Right. So so you took it to Portland, will it are, are you you're gonna be keeping that forever or is it No, it's it's going up on auction. It's just where there's I mean, I have a lot of pieces, so they're breaking up my collection into multiple auctions. I don't think it's been determined how many auctions. I've heard everything from two to four okay. from people who work there and people who don't work there, so <laughs> it's still sort of up in the air. But there are, there are wow. some, there's a fair number of pieces. Um, the counter display box, just due to its nature, would probably be 
at closer to a standalone. Right. You know, it would be in one of their future auctions, but it wouldn't be with another ten or twenty pieces from my first issue collection. That would, I think, they, I think it would just cannibalize the sales from it. And people who might be interested might be like, "Ugh, I want this piece too," so I can't do that. Well, you're going to have to bring an elephant gun to that auction for the the um, the display box. That's uh, that's a big deal. Well, here, here's a funny story about that that piece, and I'm not going to name names. Um, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I, I <clears throat> had this glass display box or display case, excuse me, forever. You know, I actually sold it before we moved up here, and, and you know where it is? It's it's at your boss's office, Scott. Oh, My really? Case is at Sam Register's office on the lot at Warner Brothers Animation, and it now holds, I think, like college was it Collegeville costumes and. Various seventies ephemera. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, no, the, the 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 Warner Brothers animation offices are a toy museum in themselves. Yeah, oh, breathtaking! Uh, it's, uh, it's awesome. And Sam Sam is an amazing human being. I absolutely love 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 him. But for for years, I had this glass display case, and I would every couple of months I would switch my collection. I'd put the emphasis on first issue cars, or I would just lay out all the boxes, or I'd try to draw attention to my mailer boxes, or uh, whatever. But <clears throat> there was a time when I was doing one of those changeovers. And the way I would do it, even though there were sliding wood, wooden sliding doors behind it, because it was a jewelry display case, uh-huh. you could also reach in and sort of pop the top glass off. So the whole big, heavy piece of glass that was the top of the case, I would just set down in front of the case. And it was easy to reach down in and nudge and push and... and you know, anal, anally organize everything exactly the way I wanted it. And I had a friend, a friend of mine came over, a Migo collector, Migo f- friend and fan, and had no idea that I had, didn't have the glass in there. So he had his big notebook, and he just, <gasps> so, yeah, I was to throw it down on the glass case, and it goes straight through, all the way down, and rips the counter display box. <gasps> I'm sorry. <laughs> and and we just looked at each other. For, it was like a funny moment of just like, wow, did that just happen? <laughs> I mean, it, it's fine. I, I don't remember your place in, in Burbank. Did you have a backyard? Is that where you buried him? Or <laughs> did you take him down to the, the docks? I mean, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Not at all. The, the funny thing is, I, it just always struck me as funny. Even when it happened, I was just like, wow. I can't because it's one of those moments where you instantly realize it's your own knuckleheadedness that caused something. Right. Uh. So I there was sincerely no ill will. It was of course anybody anybody would have done the same thing because it looked for all intents and purposes like there was a nice thick piece of glass right there and he just went to set something down and it just went Oh, um, I, I, the, the second worst, that is the worst story, but the second worst story I ever heard is, um, Lenny Lee of mm. Lee's Action Figure News. You remember he published There's that, yeah, that, that, uh, Mego book that showed all the loose superheroes in it with all their accessories. Um, I had one on the table or something and he said to me, that thing pains me to this day. And I said, why? And he goes, I had a Thor in a C10 box, nicest box I ever owned. And I was taking the Thor out of the box to take the photos for the book, and it fell. And he shoved his foot out to catch it, but instead of catching it, he smashed the box into the wall. 
Oh, I have heard that story. And he cried. You know? Just you just instinctively, you know. Oh, C three. <laughs> that seems to me that's just kind of awesome. I mean, oh, yeah. this thing has been so painstakingly handled with white gloves for thirty years, and this guy's like, "All right, I'm going to be super careful and yep. smash." Yeah. I, I had a lot of those um, frightening potentials when I was photographing the book because I wanted to shoot dead mid figures, so I was cracking a lot of the pieces that are on on. Auction at Hakes right now are pieces that I painstakingly opened with the white glove treatment and, you know, dissembled if necessary. I mean, I think I only dissembled one or two figures specifically, but uh, just even taking them out of the boxes, there's that breathless moment of like, is it just going to fall apart if I touch this? Oh, my goodness. I got a, I got a removable mask Robin, and it was the first time I'd ever seen or touched one. And I was photographing it for the museum, and this was prior to my light tent. So I was on my patio photographing it on a piece of paper. And the wind took it. (gasps) What? And the wind took it, and it landed on my patio, and I caught it just before it would have fallen underneath my patio. So by the light tent, you mean that enclosed case that is for photography? And the whole, so with the figure in it, it, the wind lifted it up and took off on you? No, I didn't have a light tent, so I went outside to photograph it with natural light. And I just put the mask on a piece of paper to photograph it with the macro lens. Oh, the mask. I'm sorry, I missed that. Okay. Yeah, and the wind just took the mask. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can always get a repro mask. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? I think we need to um, flip the script on this conversation. I'm starting to get a little, like, heart palpitation now. Jeez. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm looking. I'm online right now. I'm looking at the auction, and... and, um, you know, I don't know how you did it because, well, I, I know, I know how you did it. You worked really hard and studied and figured out how to use your camera. But the photographs that you take of Migos are so hard. Well, they're impossible to reproduce. They're so gorgeous. I'm looking at this photograph, the first item on your on your auction of the the Montgomery Ward mail order uh, box figures of Superman removable cow batman and ramen and you photograph them still in their little plastic baggies and mm-hmm. it's it's just it's just gorgeous and my gosh i really want them now right yeah <laughs> i Those think i'm not positive but i i think that that photo in the hakes auction is directly from the book yeah i'm not i'm not 100% because all the other photos um, the hate staff took. I didn't take the other photos. Oh, but that well, that's particular what, one, I'm like, it's jumping. Looks, it's jumping out at me. It's that's got to be a one that you took. Yeah, I recognized it. I oh. thought it was one that I did for because that that collection, that unbelievable collection, gets its own page in the book. So right. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to look through. The, I got the Hakes catalog. They, I love how they send out these giant phone book catalogs of everything that's there. For this, for the, the next auction, I love this stuff. Yeah, that that I've got that on my desk at work. It's it's fun to just go through it, even if I yeah. can't. Uh, even if I don't collect something, it's nice to look at it in the Hakes catalog. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, this this might have been it's, Todd who did this. It's I, the, not the same. It's not the same photograph as in the book. The then, book then Todd did it. I, I think it's uh, Todd Sheffer is the designer. I'm not sure if he did all the photography, but the guy who Todd who uh, works at Hakes 
did those gorgeous certificate of authenticity forms. Okay, right. Uh, I mean, those look fantastic. I was so impressed when, when I saw those. Um, I'm not sure if he did photography or not. He could probably clarify. I think he's on the boards. Um, I, I got yeah, to that's shake not, hands. Did you? Yeah, that's their, photo, that's their photograph, not mine. Uh, Todd wow. came to Migo Meet and passed out flyers about uh, your auction. Well done. Yeah, he, he rocked out. I was very, very impressed. I would like to ask yeah. Todd, where were you when I was working on the book, dude? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, yeah, that's, that's a high compliment because I was certain that that was, that was your, your photograph. I thought it was too, but I'm looking at it again, and I don't think so. I think they, I think they rocked that out as well. They've done a great job with this auction. That's right. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful assortment of figures, no doubt. Uh, that was another consideration: was how do we break this up to, you know, different price points, different types of characters? Because you know, you got people who are just looking for Marvel stuff, people who want DC, right. who just want a particular packaging style. So. Part of their job, where I think they did a great job, was taking the sum of my collection and divvying it up into a reasonable chunk of auctions where um, it gives enough variety for people. I mean, it's a variety within within the context of just superheroes, but sure. for, for what it is. Sure. I so, think the auction ends on Thursday, too, so it's coming up. Yeah, four days and 22 hours is what it says right now. Um, <laughs> we'll try. We'll try to get the – well, I guess this podcast will probably come out uh, Sunday or Monday. Um so I haven't asked you this uh, previously, so maybe the answer is no. But are there any? Uh, do you have any stories behind any of the figures that are up for auction right now? I'd love to hear people's stories of how they scored a, a particular piece. Mm. Before you get into that, I gotta bounce. I apologize. I've got a family thing. Okay. But, uh, just wanted to say uh, hey to Ben, and um, I will hopefully talk to you very soon. All right, Brian. It's good to hear your voice. Okay. okay. Thanks, guys. Hey, see you. see you, Brian. Collect them all. Take care. <laughs> Collect them all, buddy. <laughs> uh, I'll come around in the evening and we can do the wrap up. All right, we'll do a sign off. Very good. Great chatting with you, Ben. Okay. Bye bye. Awesome. Uh, so the the piece that jumps out to me as as a cool story that's in the current auction is the 1976 carded penguin. Okay. Just because that's. A piece that was never for sale. It was. It came directly out of the Migo sample room. Um, that's the one that was collected by John McNett, who was an art director at Migo around '78, '79. That that later later time frame. Um, and it's just it's an it's just amazing to me to have a piece that never went through the retail channels at all. I mean, uh. it was picked right off the boat, stuck in the samples room, and then you know, nicked by by somebody who worked there. So to, to me, just the heritage of that piece makes it special. Penguin is not the most popular character by any stretch, but just the sort of pedigree of, of that particular specimen is special. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I see that's noted, of course, in the catalog. There we go. Yeah, yeah you spent, uh, you spent a, a lot of time uh, interviewing uh, John McNett and, and his wife, I believe. Linda, Yes. Yeah, John, John unfortunately passed away not too long ago. It's very sad. Right. An amazing human being, and his wife is incredible. She was Neil Cumberland's assistant. That's right. So she, back in 73 or 4, whatever it was, found an ad looking for an assistant, and the, the phone number was wrong. So when she called, she got some other company. 
but being as tenacious as she is, she's a, just a, a firecracker. She went and started dialing different combinations, like of the last digit. Oh wow! And somehow managed to get through to Migo by just guessing their phone number, and got hired. You know, got hired immediately by Neil. Wow. Yeah, some of the I remember you telling me some of the stories about she uh, like driving out to do mm. uh, shoots for catalogs and commercials and things like that. She was she she worked with him in many different capacities. She did everything. She was his right hand woman, and yeah, that story of of them cruising down the Jersey Turnpike with their hair blowing in the wind in in Neil's little red Corvette, holding like prototype Mego figures to go down to the, the photo studio for, you know, marketing photography uh, for the commercials. It's just, I love that image. Yeah, like, I want to be, I want to be like Robert Downey Jr. in less than zero in that shot. Just get me drunk and put me in the middle of that car. Wow. God. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the photographs in the very back of, of your book that, um, well, you really got to, got to hold of some amazing pictures of, of the staff at Migo, they were all just so young and groovy oh, and beautiful. It's like they only hired beautiful people. I don't know, but I think it was an unwritten law. You had to be gorgeous and talented and energetic to work there. So, <laughs> well, that is that is the way of the world where so many things happen. Touche, touche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. But yeah, all those pieces came from from Linda, who was incredibly generous and. And uh, again, I've got other interview stuff that I'm going to have to share with you guys for future podcasts or publication because obviously I couldn't get everything into the book. And in light of me sort of walking away from the whole Mego world after publishing the book, there's a lot of sort of unpublished material that's kind of fun. So I'm going to need to spend some time compiling all that, aggregating it and getting it over to you so you you guys can throw the love out. Yeah, we'd be happy, we'd be honored to give it uh, a home if uh, if that's what you want to do. Um, yeah, I just I, I have so much respect for for all the work you did. It's 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 been a joy to watch it happen, and congratulations again. You know, and um, you know, it's not a being a mega collector is not a lifetime sentence. <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of people uh, uh, have taken breaks. I, I t- took a very long break from Migo. Right. And uh, so... Oh, yeah. I may well be, be back. I would have to be in considerably better financial uh, circumstances to dive back in at this point. Yeah. Um, but you never know. I may win the lottery next week and, and be the high bidder on all my auctions. Like, <laughs> See ya! <laughs> well, you know, it's like... I mean, the great thing about it is they're still going to be around. You know, yep. it's not, it may, it may not always, I mean, you know, it certainly seems like there were times in the, in the mid, in the previous decade when it was like picking apples off a tree. There were so many amazing Migos that were surfacing and, right. and all of that, but, uh, there's, they're still going to be around and they'll be waiting for you if you want to come back. Well, as long as we stop dropping binders on them and kick smashing them into the wall. <laughs> Amen to that. I found an old document. From, from my production files. I've got just boxes of notes and charts and things that I put together for this book. And um, I've got a notation of there being 56 known first issue card variations and 214 known packaging variations for United States released World's Greatest Superheroes. And I don't think that that information has changed in the four years since the book came out. 
which surprises me because I really fully expected there to be three or four new variations. Of, but I'm just talking packaging, discovered, and I, I don't think there has been. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I'm not the right person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, talk a little bit about the – can I remember when you were writing the book? I remember we had we had dinner in L.A. and you you pulled out this chart that seemed like it went on forever. Where you were, I mean, you really did, and you had to do an archaeological, take an archaeological approach to 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 figuring some of this stuff out with the packaging variations, because of course nobody was keeping records. Migo didn't didn't care. Um, and, and it's not like it is today where, you know, a new toy line comes out and there are people who are obsessively tracking all the variations and it all gets charted and recorded. You had to go back and figure a lot of that out from, from scratch. Yeah. And it did, it did feel like archeology. span That's, it's a good word for it. That chart that you're talking about was ridiculous. It started out as a single page, like eight and a half by 11 Adobe Illustrator document in like 2003. Yeah. And it was the X and Y axis of uh, X axis being 1972, 73, 74, all the way up to 82. And then down the left side, every character broken down by category. First wave heroes, second wave heroes, super gals, so on and so forth, all the way down. And then just basically connecting up those X, Y points and saying, is there a variation that matches 1974 Captain America? What is it? Mm-hmm. And that thing grew and evolved. And I think by the time we had dinner in, in, the, in the Bay Area, I used to have to print out like eight sheets of paper and tape them together because it was so, it had grown so much and there were so many variations. I mean, 214 is the last count where I, I can't, I don't know of any other packaging variations. Um, and so in, 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 in some, like to, to put this in perspective of people who are not, you know, packaging, um, fanatics, um, but you you were able to identify, um, like the idea that it's like this card should exist. No one has seen it yet, but it should be out there because it makes sense within the timeline of Mego. And like, what's a good example of something like that? Uh, well, I I never uh, cited a package unless it was verified. Okay, but I have, I do have plenty of instances on the chart for um, ghosted out, if you will. I would do that at like a lighter opacity. So be thinking there's got to be one of these here. Okay. Um, so the, for, off the top of my head, Aquaman, there's a couple different Aquamans really, but Aquaman on a uh, first issue card with the, with the new logo. Mm-hmm. Probably should be one. He was in that assortment. Um, there is a green arrow. I mean, it's just uh, he really should be there, and it's never been, it's never been documented, never been found. Right. Actually, that just reminds me. There are actually a couple of variations that um, came out, didn't come out, but that had already been out, and people knew about them. I missed them for the book, but I know that Dan Crandall and Mark Huckabone had also identified a variation that I did not, which is the last version of the 1979 blister card, the little sort of second issue card, as I call them, where the the figure is off to the right. There is a variation of those where the little Nego logo in the left-hand corner, there is a difference, and this is, you're getting into real minutiae here. Yeah. There is a variation where one of the Nego logos has a trademark symbol, 
and the other one has a registered trademark, like the Circle R. Okay. And that and that's an honest to god variation. I mean, when you want to get down into those nitty gritties, right? So any of those, uh, well, actually not all of them, but for a lot of those seventy nine characters that were coming out toward the end, there's that variation as well, which isn't in the book. So it's even more than two hundred and fourteen. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. It is. It's amazing. So uh, I'm gonna I'll ask you some questions that I actually think I know the answer to, but okay. that I think our, our our podcast listeners would enjoy. Um, why, for instance, are uh, the Green Goblin and Iron Man, why are those such sought-after and rare carded Migos? Supply and demand is, is the only answer I've ever been able to come up with. Just uh-huh. that they, they, they put them out there, but I don't, I don't think they sold well. I think a lot of that stuff got, got recycled and trashed and, and sent back. Um, again, in anticipation of you giving me a call, I was going through my old files and I was reading... Uh, an interview with one of one of the guys from the the, where, the warehouse, the Mego warehouse in in Bohemia, in Islip, New York, and he was talking about. Let me let me scroll up and find this. Guy. I had it open here. Um, read something to you. Uh, sorry, I'm giving you dead dead air for a moment here. Uh, Oh, yeah, here it is. So these are from my notes from one of the interviews. It says that he recalled that Migo took everything back, like returns. He pointed out that this effort predated computers, so trying to generate return authorization numbers would be implausible. He recalled that they did try return authorization numbers, but it just didn't work. Migo just didn't have the ability or manpower to sort through the returns to determine which should receive a return authorization and which wouldn't. So they just took it all back. Okay. So... I think that's probably going to be uh, one of those situations with those the, those third wave characters on cards that they didn't sell. They just they didn't move at retail, so they probably ended up back um, at the warehouse, and then various things happened at that point. Right. But and uh, those, like like the, I mean the, those figures were only then they were they were pretty much promptly discontinued. Yeah, I think at that point Migo had figured out what was a good seller and what wasn't and they were more quick to to move which might explain things why we don't have aquaman on that last version first issue card with green arrow in that or maybe they just said you know because he was a a constantly a a low a low seller i mean there's so many variations of aquaman but by all accounts it just was not a big seller for them right um so at that point because then you know there you're talking about 1977 or so they had a couple years under their belt and really had a good sense of of what was working, so it doesn't surprise me that there are no variations for a couple of those uh, Marvel characters after that. They right. weren't moving; they were not going to make a, a version B card for for Green. Excuse me for Green Goblin. Right, right, and yet they left him on the back of the card. I know. <laughs> so I mean, you had no idea, but if if it was 1979 and you were standing there in Toys R Us looking at all the superheroes and thinking. Where is Catwoman? Where is Green Goblin? Where is the Lizard? But let me tell you, there's another, there's another thing to think years. about. There's another, there's another way to look at that, too. And Migo may have been fully aware of this. And we tend to lose sight of it because we have, we, well, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but I have these sort of sugar plum dreams of walking in and seeing a perfect display of carded Migos arranged by character. You know, just gorgeous, ah, sure. holy light coming down. But even in 1979, when you walked into any given store that had toys, 
you are just as likely to see a second issue card as a couple of strike or boxes of Mr. Mitzpidlick and Green Goblin. Uh-huh. So part of this distinction might just be the fact that there were still plenty of goblins out there that are in boxes that weren't selling. Retailers had them. They were, they were just not moving. That's true. So you could still, as a kid, in 79, go and do it. It doesn't change the fact that we as kids did not like those Mego characters. We didn't, we didn't buy them up. It you know, kind of breaks my heart because it, it, it resonates with me for what's going on with MC right now. and My heart is broken because I fell in love with what they were doing with the new superhero stuff. But yeah. if, the, if it's not moving, it's hard to argue numbers. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And so it's, it's just doubly heartbreaking because it seems to me that like a big part of being a Mego collector is sort of lamenting the fact that they went away. Mm. Like never quite understanding why don't they make those kind of action figures anymore, you know? And uh, and now we're sort of we're now we're we're reliving it all over again with retro action as as they fade into the sunset. Yeah, we you know we're Mego collectors are a small but passionate group, um, and I found out how small with with the, with the book because you know that's just that's about moving units as well and right. The book did great. It took four years, but it moved through everything that we did. I think there, there are probably eight or ten copies out there on Amazon left that they found in some warehouse next to a case of carded green goblins. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a small, it's a small group. So I'm on, on the one hand, I'm not surprised that it's not delivering the type of numbers someone like Mattel would expect. Right. But it's heartbreaking to watch as someone who loves it and so impressed with what Paul and MC did. It's amazing. Coming up out of time, this is, I think, possibly the longest Mego podcast to date, but it's been so much fun having you. And um, good luck on your auctions. I just want to remind everyone they are the auctions are going to be completing on the 23rd, correct? Yeah, Thursday. And I think the way Hates works is if a piece is still getting bids at the 11th hour, they extend it a little bit longer. It's the sort of old-school, traditional auction style as opposed to eBay, which is just once it's over, it's over. Right on. Right on. Well, so there you have it, folks, though. One of the, you know, I got to say, one of the world-class Mego collections is available uh, now, and it's your chance to own a piece of history. And um, Yeah, somebody's already bid on, on the first issue card of Green Arrow, which is so, I love that piece so much. <laughs> it's one of those, like, oh, I'm glad it's got a bid. Oh, wait, it's got a bid. <laughs> uh, I know, I know. I remember you going back and forth. Uh, as to whether or not you were going to get that one. That was, oh, that was a big so deal. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a beautiful piece. That was a big deal. Well, listen, Ben, it's been great having you. And um, as we discussed, uh, you're, you're going to come back and uh, we'll have you on for another podcast and go through some of these uh, interviews and audio material that uh, you did for the book. And, I, yeah, I think a little behind the scenes from the book production it's been four years. It's time to dig in there and, and see what's there and, and share some goodness. Yeah, I think that'll be fantastic. So in the meantime, good luck with the auction. Good luck in Portland. And uh, thanks for being on the Mego Museum podcast. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. All right. Okay, so that wraps up our interview with uh, Ben Holcomb. And uh, like I said there at the end, we'll um, have been on uh, again. He's actually sharing some amazing interviews that he did with some uh, Mego employees. So look forward to that. And we're going to be diving into our archives as well. Um, yeah. And at the at, actually at the end of this podcast, after we close, I'm going to play a little snippet from the very first Neil Cublin uh, interviews, uh, just uh. to give you a taste of what that's like. Um, 
they 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 require uh, some editing. You know, um, <laughs> I didn't quite. I don't know what I was thinking, but when I recorded those interviews, I actually I was so nervous. Like you hear music playing in the background, that I wish I hadn't it turned on, but I, for some reason, I wanted music to sort of calm my nerves or something like that so you hear music playing in the background and uh and sadly true you can hear me chain smoking like a chimney all the way through well you know what that was years before the word podcast even existed so oh yeah you, you this was going to be print and put on your website and you know everybody was on dial-up back then so you know we weren't thinking towards the future and That's you know right. the second the second interview i did with neil I just had a, a tape recorder playing in another room and uh, was taping the uh, the phone conversation real old-fashioned. And my wife and my friend came into the room and started having a long discussion. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah, it's really bad. And they're mixing drinks with ice. and you know. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. somehow that's fitting for Neil. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny. But, you know, I was just thinking of all this stuff we talked about today. If you recall, like when we started this podcast, we were we were saying, how are we going to keep this going? And it just seems to be perpetuating itself with topics of interest and, and, and things going on. So it's, it's, it's really actually nice to see how much material is out there and how much we can just keep going with this. We haven't even we haven't even uh, scraped the surface yet. I think. No, it's it it's it's really true. It's really true. And I want to encourage our listeners too to uh, let us know, give us some feedback on the uh, Migo Museum forums, or or uh, contact us via private message to the Migo Museum, and and mm-hmm. uh, let us know um, what your thoughts are of stuff you'd like to hear uh, for the for podcasts. And um, we'll try to get a little bit more organized next time we do an interview. Uh, give people, I think, an opportunity to. Uh, ask some questions ahead of time might be a good idea. And, Certainly. Uh, and all of that. So let us know what you'd like to hear. But, uh, yeah, Brian's right. We've got a, a list of likely candidates a mile long right now. But I'm glad we've covered – we've had the MC Boys on, Castaway, Ben Holcomb. Um, I, I think we need to do a longer thing with Castaway than I did. That was sure. a fun little interview. But, yeah, I, trust me, I, I, we could talk to Jason and David for – that could be a two-parter right there. Yeah, you know, and, and we haven't talked to. Uh, I bought a. Uh, I don't want to get scolded here. Zika Zika, uh, Buck Rogers on the weekend at Mego Meet, and yeah. uh, what a fabulous toy! Yeah, and we, we got to talk. We to should them. get that fella on there too. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, of course, and then of course we're going to drag the CEO of Mattel onto the podcast and yes. make an answer for his. Oh yeah, firing <laughs> line. Yeah. He's been avoiding my calls all week. I don't understand what the problem is. Yeah, I, I've been sending him some emails in crayon, but yeah, you know, yeah. I don't all right, know man. <laughs> all right. Well, well it's been it's then. been fun. Uh, enjoy the podcast. I think it's probably clocked in at like three hours or something like that. But uh, <laughs> hey, <laughs> it's just bandwidth. That's it. It's just bandwidth. That's all. What else are you gonna do with your your Monday morning? All right, everybody. Uh, until next time, this is the Mega Museum podcast. Uh, this is Scott, and I'm Brian, and we're saying collect them collect all. Collect them all. Okay. Groovy. Hello. Hello. I'm calling for Neil Kublan. Speaking. Neil, this is Scott Carroll. How are you, Scott? How are you, sir? Good. I appreciate you taking some time on Sunday. Okay, where are you calling from? 
um, San Francisco. Oh, way out there. Yeah, way out on the other side. I've been in San Francisco for about 10 years now. Huh. So. How's the weather? Uh, it's a little hot today. Weather now. It's supposed to be a 90 degree week. Really? It's muggy out there, though. I imagine. Yeah, famous San Francisco cold summer has disappeared for a couple of days and it's hotter than hell. But. So, what did you want to ask, Scott? Well, what do you think of uh, all this, this whole interview idea? I probably piled a whole lot of text on top of you there. But no, I mean, I think. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased about the whole thing. I'm kind of surprised and taken aback, but I mean, uh, I, I'm kind of uh, enjoying it. The few things that I've read over the years about, um, you know, the old Migo days uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, tends to be, uh, tends to forget how many people were really involved. Right. Right. Well, there is, the you know, the body of literature is pretty small. And it is growing, but you know the int- the interest in it is is growing mainly because uh, those of us who played with the toys when we were, were kids have grown up. We have some money, and we're out to get them. And uh, there's just a lot of questions that people want to know. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited to answer whatever questions we can. Well, I'm you know I, I, I started with them before Marty when Marty was still in college. Yeah. Doing only on the eighty-eight cents sales. That's right. And I left um, <clears throat> just before the debacle. I left in eighty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading up in an article, sort of about the 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 end of Migo in in eighty-two. I guess things went went downhill pretty quickly there. Yeah. Well, there were already problems when I left, but uh-huh. nothing, nothing that at least I felt couldn't be overcome. Right. Right. Um. Okay, well, why don't we, what I'd kind of like to do is just go ahead and start at the beginning there. Um, So I guess it was in 1971 that that Marty took over and the company changed from the the hush-up toys, is that what you you all called them? No, that was a a trademark we owned. Uh, There was no real generic, there was no real um, definitive name for the product line. I mean, we put hush-up toys, we used it on a few... uh, uh, different isolated ones, but the main business of the company were these 88 cent sales, uh-huh. 88 cent promotions. Right. Which, um, essentially, we're beginning to dwindle because um, his dad, Dave, uh, he had always sold department stores, what they used to call the basement departments, which were uh, like Filene's of Boston has uh, a basement department where the closeouts and the specials are. Uh huh. And um, the basic concept uh, at one time was was excellent in that they purchased a certain amount of goods and they got a 10% advertising allowance, which was um, paid upon presentation of a tear sheet. But what happened was newspaper advertising began to become prohibitively expensive. Uh-huh. And the company was kind of dwindling. Um, they had uh, already begun or started a... Um, a trading company in the Orient called Lion Rock Trading. Okay. Uh, with the, it was essentially the, the customs man from uh, the trading company that used before, who whose name escapes me because I, I did some business with him, but not much. Okay. And um, from there, uh, when Marty came in, um, really the first thing that happened was that. Um, 
he had decided to do Action Jackson, which was really um, a knockoff of G.I. Joe, a way to make G.I. Joe at a cheaper price. Sure, sure. And the name came from Phil Jackson, who ultimately became the coach of the Chicago Bulls. No, no, you're kidding me. Mm -hmm. Marty's father was kind of a Knicks fan. You know, we're the New York guys. Mm -hmm. And he liked the Knicks. Uh huh. And Phil Jackson was constantly referred to as Action Jackson. <laughs> sixth man. Who came in and always stirred up the team. Right. Um, you know, he was uh -huh. uh, the quintessential sixth man. Right. He came and fired things up. Right. So, um, the, the sportscasters were calling him Action Jackson. Action Jackson. And that's where the name came from. I'll be darned. That that is uh, that that's amazing. How 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 wonderful. Um, so so. This was a very big surprise. Oh, I'm I okay. Absolutely, I'll try to re restrain my applause. Um, so, Action Jackson was 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 the first idea that that Marty brought into it. Well, he didn't bring it in. It was um, where it where it began. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, and I seem to recall any number of conversations about it. It was it was his dad's idea, D. David Abrams. He's passed away since. Okay. And it was his idea. It was, I think, Marty's idea to take it to television. Oh, all right. And he made a, a change in the in the structure of the company. Was 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 GI Joe um, advertised on television at the time? Yes. Okay. It was. All right. So okay. So, I'm uh, not really positive on it, but... Right. I'll, I'll check on some more of that. But, but so it was Marty's idea to bring it to television. Yeah. And, um, go we ahead. Hired an ad. We, we, he restructured the company. I was basically uh, um, an art director. I did the uh, ad layouts for the 88 Cent Toys. Uh-huh. <clears throat> he brought in a fellow from who had a background out of Ideal Toys who were pioneers in television promotion. Okay. Um, and it was a, basically a sales guy with uh, who was looking to be a marketing guy. His name was Neil Saul. He spelled his name N E I L. Okay. It was S A U L, and he's still on the fringes of the business. I speak to him occasionally, and uh, in a way, he was my mentor. Um, and, and they hired an ad agency named Hellitzer Advertising. The guy's name is Mel Hellitzer. Okay. Almost sunk the company. Wow. Because one of the questions I've answered, I'm not going to recall if it was you or John, was um, that we were sued for false advertising. Mm hmm And that was really the only particular case. Uh, being novices, we had no idea as to uh, rules and regulations. Mm hmm And in those days, the industry was self-governed through the NAB, National Association of Broadcasters. Okay. And everybody played ball with them, did what they were told. Right. And uh, this Hellitzer advertising, he had a book out that everybody was impressed with. And uh, he was the agency that made the commercials and the Action Jackson commercials. And they were so loaded with animation and stuff like that. So like the figures were done in stop motion animation? Yeah, it was stop motion. There was a lot of, um, I didn't see them on the reel I got, but there was a lot of actual animation. Those were later ones. The uh -huh. first ones were all animation. Wow. Very, well, mostly animation. Very right. similar to what's done today. Right. 
In those days, you couldn't do it. Right. Much stricter ruling. Right. And um, by fall, we were thrown off television. Wow. By the NAB. Yeah. Well, they couldn't do it, but they um, they notified all the stations, and they took us off television. Well, that must have been a scary time. Oh yeah. Yeah, it really was. But about that time, there was a an animated cartoon show that I believe was on four or five days a week called World's Greatest Superheroes. Uh-huh. There were three segments. Batman was one and Lone Ranger was one. Mm-hmm. And I kind of opted for the name. And we were too small a company to go out and get the licenses, but we knew some guys in the product development area, company still in business called Leisure Concepts Industries, mm-hmm. LCI. And they still do much the same thing. And we got them to go to... Uh, LCA, which was the Licensing Corporation of America, which was owned by, was then um, Warner Communications, just become Warner Communications, or it was about to become Warner Communications. Hmm. But it was with DC Comics, and um, uh, it was already a, a mini conglomerate. Mm-hmm. And um, they wanted a $50,000 advance for all the characters. Wow. And those first closed boxes, mm-hmm. which were a disaster. The solid boxes. Those the first boxes, mm-hmm. the artwork was done by a guy named, was designed by a guy named Mike Jamaican. Uh-huh. Who was an instructor in the School of Visual Arts in New York. Uh-huh. Did he do the art for it or just the package design? He did the package design, and okay. I can't tell you if he did the art or if he got it from D.C. I think I, I think most of that is from D.C. I, I know Superman is Kurt Swan, but go ahead. But um, okay, it was approved by D, by D.C. Mm-hmm. At that time, the guy who was running D.C. I'm not sure if it was at that time or if he came in later, but it was Carmine Infantino who drew Batman. For right. And Saul Harrison was the uh, number two guy. And um, essentially when we got it, we had to pay $50,000 up front in advance against royalties. We had to get board of directors approval. From D.C.? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Our board of directors, nobody wanted to spend that much money. Oh, I see. I see. Captain Action had been such a disaster. Really? For ideal a couple of years earlier. Uh-huh. But, and I, I'll use a lot of eyes here. Yeah going to sound a little strange, so at the risk of sounding immodest, I'm telling you like it is. Go ahead. Well, it was. Uh, I made the presentation, and they went for it. And we did a test that Christmas. And um, at EJ Corvettes, in fact, which was a a discount chain in New York then. Mm -hmm. Long since defunct. Mm -hmm. And they checked right out. It was uh, instant. Instant hit. Mm -hmm. Wow. What 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 did you do in your presentation that convinced them? <clears throat> I think the whole thing was that I convinced them that a the, the cartoon series was doing very well, uh-huh. which I didn't know. I didn't know whether it was or it wasn't right. know about ratings or anything like that. Sure. But um, <clears throat> and I said to them, "Look, Captain Action was one set with a bunch of things to to make a bunch of different turn one character." Mm-hmm. into many and that's not what kids were looking for they wanted their own to play with so they could have an adversary relationship right and it convinced them and um, and how exciting what we really did is we took an awful lot of Action Jacksons 
<laughs> and made new heads and new costumes. Uh-huh. So, going back to Action Jackson, was when that character was created, was was there the idea already present that, that you would be able to swap heads and use nope. the... Really? Lucky accident. Lucky accident. So, so it was... The chicken came first mm -hmm. in, in that case. There were a number of those. Uh-huh. And that interview was recorded on July 9th, 1998. And um, I thought that was going to be a shorter expert excerpt than it was, but uh, it was kind of hard to find a place to stop. And um, so we'll, we'll put some more of the, that interview up. Neil goes on to talk about um, all kinds of really cool stuff. And uh, that's the end of the podcast. This is definitely our longest podcast to date. Um, but I think it's been filled with some great stuff. So thanks for listening, and tune in to the Mega Museum podcast next time. For Brian, this is Scott saying, collect them all, kids. Bye, Migo.